I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, right at the very beginning. I alluded to the fact this morning that we who take the Bible seriously are asked to believe in a lot of strange things. Uh, this is not back in the early centuries after the time of Christ. Uh, this is not back in uh, the 1700s. We're in the 21st century, folks, and we're supposed to accept these things the Bible says about that they really happened. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. How about manna coming down from heaven in some miraculous way? Not the walls of Jericho falling down as the Israelites marched around those walls. How about Elijah calling down fire from heaven to the prophets of Baal? How about the virgin birth of Jesus? What about Jesus walking on the water and Peter soon to walk with him? Walking on water? Come on. What about the resurrection of Lazarus? Did that really happen? How could it happen? What about the resurrection of Jesus himself? This great teaching, along with the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the two pillars of the gospel message. Well, why do Christians believe that these things really occurred? And uh, one important reason, there are many, uh, you know, we listen to parents, we listen to friends, relatives, we see TV news, and for the most part, as we hear these people and deal with them, we think to ourselves, uh, I, I can trust them. Well, that's the way you need to approach the writers of the Bible, and particularly, for our purposes tonight, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. I'll be alluding to Acts here and there, but primarily what I have to say is about Luke. Now, the first four verses are called the prologue or the preface. And in, in ancient times, among Greek historians and Josephus and other ancient writers, they had a customary introduction, and this is what the first four verses are, to assure the readers of the writer's reliability, his methods, and his purpose. Down at the end of verse 3, you'll see the name Theophilus with the adjective most excellent, Theophilus, meaning friend of God. Most excellent indicates that uh, he was a man of honor, position, and respect of some kind. Probably he was a baptized Christian who had been catechized in the faith, but he still had some questions. And we, if we can put ourselves back in his day, it's much like our day. I mean, all the onslaughts of pagan thought, things coming his way, uh, questioning uh, his, his faith. Um, so that could have been... a possible reason, possible influence of Gnosticism, which denied many historical realities. And so, whatever it was, he needed stronger foundation for his faith. So I'm hoping to pass that on to you tonight with these four, first four verses to strengthen your faith in the Word of God. Along the way, I'm going to be giving some quotations rather than dump them all at one time. So let me start out with the first quotation from Colin Hammer, a noted Roman historian. He noted that Luke was written 25 to 30 years after the crucifixion. He kind of keep that in mind as we go through here, that Luke is talking about a lot of things that happened long before he got busy writing 
what we know as the Gospel of Luke and also the book of, of Acts. Anyway, Mr. Hammer writes this. Here you have an impeccable historian who has been proved right in hundreds of details and never proven wrong, writing the whole history of Jesus and the early church. And it's written with one, within one generation while eyewitnesses still were alive and could have disputed it if it were exaggerated or false. You don't have anything like that from any other religious book from the ancient world. So with that first quotation, we're off to a pretty good start here to trust in Luke. Before I look at these verses, just something about Luke's credentials. Why should we particularly believe in him? Why Luke? Why is he dependable in what he writes? Five things. Number one, he was a Gentile, meaning he wasn't a Jew, meaning he was more objective, he was more of an outsider who could look more carefully at what was happening in had happened in the Jewish world. Number two, he was a physician. Colossians 4, 14, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. I think this is evidenced by several medical references that he makes in his uh, uh, two books. So he was an educated man. Number three, he was a scientist. And I don't mean with test tubes and those kinds of things, examining chemicals and that kind of thing. But what I mean by a scientist, a scientist. He was a man with a serious mind about obtaining information and using careful observation and careful comparisons and deductions from what he found. Number four, he was a fellow worker with Paul. Now, this is especially important for the book of Acts. There are four sections of the book of Acts called the we section, W-E, not W-E-E, W-E, I mean, which all of a sudden find Luke writing, and so we did this and we did that. Luke has joined Paul in his party uh, in missionary work, and then he kind of leaves for a while and he comes back. But think of all that he had opportunity to learn on his contact with Paul. And finally, number five, he was a godly Christian who was a faithful servant for Christ in these years. Uh, it's estimated he might have died at age 84. I just have a question mark by that. So to summarize his credentials, Luke was a highly cultured author who wrote in flawless and elegant Greek, giving crucial information about the life of Christ and early Christian history. In other words, he was well-situated to be a reliable reporter of what he wrote about, just who he was. So can we believe in Luke? Think of all those things. He's a pretty dependable guy. We, we listen to the news. We go, yeah, I believe that probably happened. We talk with somebody. They describe it. Yeah, I believe that happened. We can also say this happened because Luke is a reliable reporter. Let's look at the text then. Oh, excuse me, before I do that, two more brief quotations. Otto Piper, a German Bible scholar, wherever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment has been unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. Good to know that, isn't it? How about F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a British scholar and historian? A writer who relates his story to the wider context of world history is courting trouble if he is not careful. He affords his critical readers so many opportunities for testing his accuracy. Luke takes this risk and stands the test admirably. So there again, there are two reputable men, and they have high praise for Luke. But from where did he get his information. So let's look at Luke's sources. We looked at his credentials. Now let's look at his sources. 
Obviously, he used his own mind as a human being, and of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But what he wrote down was exactly letter for letter, word for word, what the Lord wanted to be written down, become part of the Word of God, the Word of God. He doesn't claim himself to have been an eyewitness. However, he had opportunity to interview many people who were eyewitnesses. Now, this is very important, and we'll see that in just a moment. <clears throat> Again, to quote a, a Dr. J.A.C. Van Leeuwen, a Dutch Bible scholar, covering all the nations of the world here, it is quite possible that the apostles and first evangelists themselves felt the need of written notes and availed themselves of these for their preaching. It is even highly probable that for this purpose, various events in the life of the Lord, various data from his preaching were committed to writing. Now, of course, we have, uh, you know, these little phones, that you texting and so on. You can write things real quickly here. Or you can speak into them. They didn't have anything like that in the first century. So they had a papyrus or whatever it was. Probably it took them a long time to do it, but at least they got the general idea down, and they were written. So a lot of things were being written. In fact, that's how verse 1 starts out. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Uh, Inasmuch in as, as is a strange way to put a couple of words, think of since by now. So Luke is saying to Theophilus, since by now, many have undertaken to compile a narrative, and so forth. Uh, in Luke's day, already there had been considerable interest in writing about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, they were much aware that he had made a tremendous impact in the land of Palestine. <clears throat> um, they were learning about his teachings, uh, his lifestyle, his character, his miracles, his death, and his amazing resurrection and his ascension. Now, it's true that the only place we find this information is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if it's true, why don't we find any other sources? Well, keep in mind, the Roman Empire was a vast geographical, covered vast geographical area. And way over here to the southeast is little tiny Palestine. It's true that people would come in back and forth there, but with all the population in the empire, they would be very, had no interest in what was going on way over there. So we shouldn't be surprised at that. We should come back to the main question, is Luke and Matthew, Mark, and John, are they dependable writers? Can we believe in what they say? <clears throat> he talks about the things that have been accomplished among us. Now this is interesting. Um, the Greek word here is pragmaton, and that refers to actual historical facts. That's how the word was used in the first century. Luke did not use the Greek word rhema, which talks about stories that may or may not have been true. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit guided Luke to write about pragmaton, historical things that really happened, not this sort of vague uh, rhema stuff, rhema things. Uh, things that really happened. They weren't myths, they weren't legends, they weren't gossip. And these things have been accomplished among us. Now the Greek word for accomplish is a big one, peplerof o remenon. 
It's a perfect passive participle, meaning a completed action with continuing results. Now, as a side thought, it's still Steve Barr. He's not the only Greek scholar around. Malcolm knows a little bit about Greek, too. <clears throat> that word means accomplished, done, experienced among us. Verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us. That's an important verse there, that verse number 2. Just as from the beginning, and what a beginning it was with the life of Jesus, the virgin birth. And that's why Luke devotes virtually two whole chapters at the beginning of his gospel of Luke here to matters regarding the virgin birth of Christ. Matthew also has a few things to say, but Luke has the most to say about the virgin birth. Um, in Acts 1, uh, verse 1, he talks about things that uh, he had written previously in his previous book. And uh, he says, in my first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he's kind of continuing that even in the book of, book of Acts. In 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, it's talking about Jesus. And John, who was an eyewitness, Luke was not an eyewitness to these things, but John certainly was. And in 1 John 1, he begins this way, talking about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which you have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it. We're witnesses and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John, in effect, is saying, we were with Jesus. We, we heard him. We talked and we touched him. He was real. What he had to say was very, very real. And John would have shared that with Luke. And they would have taken down his notes and made particular uh, reference to uh, something that John shared with him about Jesus there. Okay. Um, the ministers of the word. Who, what's he referring to there? We are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And I think that's primarily the 12 apostles plus Paul but also many other faithful people who were sharing their faith in that first century. About Christ's person, his words, his deeds, they were all around. Yet more specific, uh, specifics, I think, are needed. From whom, where did he get this information? Well, uh, I found this very fascinating when I was doing research on this. Remember, 25 or 30 years have gone by so it's somewhat of a long time, but not really that long of a time. Many eyewitnesses were still alive when Luke was gathering his information. We need to keep that in mind. Let me give you some examples. I already alluded to the, the uh, apostles. Um, for Luke, especially, he would be interested in what Matthew and Mark and John had to say. And Mark, we think, was influenced quite a bit by Peter. So those men were particularly important. And remember, these were all witnesses of the resurrection, including the Apostle Paul, of course. How about Jesus' mother, Mary? She is featured quite a bit in those first two chapters. Where did Luke get that information? 
Well, I think most of the Bible scholars think that Mary, when she gave birth to Jesus, was a, a kind of a late teenager, a very young mother. Whether that was or not, or whether it was in her 20s, still, she would have been possibly alive. Luke could have well interviewed her. And what about the other Marys? We read the New Testament, we, Mary pops up here, another Mary over here, and we can't keep them all straight. They certainly were, could have been interviewed as well. How about a gal that appears in the Gospels named Johanna? Johanna, or Joanna. She was healed by Jesus from evil spirits. She became a follower of Jesus. She provided him with material support from her possessions. Possibly and probably she was at the cross with the other women. Surely she was at his tomb. And to all that wealth of information Johanna could have passed on to Luke, what about this? She was the wife of one of King Herod's stewards. So she had access to King Herod. She picked up a lot of things from there. How about Philip in Caesarea on one of the missionary journeys? Paul writes on the next, or Luke writes, on the next day we, there's one of the we sections, departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the seven original deacons, Acts chapter 6. And we stayed with him. We stayed with him. We had an opportunity to talk to him. Philip could have shared much information with Luke. We're also told on that same uh, visit, James and all the elders of Jerusalem, they were also in Caesarea at that time. And how about the, the 500 witnesses that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15? He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of who are still alive. Luke makes a point to make that out. You want to know where I got my information? 500 witnesses, most of them are still alive. I got a lot of information from them to secure the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Also, we should note the places Luke could have visited around Palestine. I'm not told that, but it's certainly possible. Of villages, homes, buildings, the temple. How about uh, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and surely Jerusalem, Galilee, Gethsemane, Golgotha, the empty tomb. I personally believe that Luke said, show me the tomb. <laughs> and the children, and understand, never found the body of Jesus here, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Never been found. And these eyewitnesses like that, we could probably multiply that if we have more information, uh, these people, <clears throat> excuse me, have delivered what they saw and heard to us. Now he's talking about himself, Luke, and his assistants who helped him uh, gather this information together. So this valid information that Luke gives to us is from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word to men like Luke, enabling him to write Luke and Acts and to provide very important information for the gospel. So Luke gathers all this information. We don't know how much he had. Now comes the time he's got to put it together. 
So what method did Luke use to take all this information and bring it down so that Theophilus and others could understand it? Verse 3, it seemed good to me also. Providentially, the Lord helped Luke to acknowledge he needed to write something. That's what he's saying here. Seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. Yeah, I spent a lot of time putting this stuff together. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Having followed all things. There's that word pragmatone again. Actual historical facts. Possibly his, his reference here to his previous research on the subject, uh, which he obtained and organized from these various eyewitnesses. So now he desires to write an orderly account. So I think what Luke is saying here, as we come to that phrase, to write an orderly account, is something like this. He's saying, by diligent and careful investigation, I have followed everything up to its source in order to obtain an accurate account of these matters, tracking everything down until satisfied of its truth. Therefore, what we have in the book of Luke, not to mention Acts as well, is a quite reliable compilation. It's not confused. It's not haphazard. Uh, greater Bible scholars than myself have kind of shown themes of the Gospel of Luke here and how Luke decides to use this information here. He leaves something else out there, just like Matthew, Mark, and John did. So that was his approach. Um, and he maybe implies... And what he has to say here that those up in verse 1, many have been undertaken to compile a narrative of those things, they didn't do that good of a job by implication. They didn't do that job. It needs to be a more orderly account, so I determined I'm going to do it. And we think he did a, a very good job. The big question is how did he do? How accurate? Was Luke. And I've already shared a few quotations from you on that. This is an important subject because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Or to put it another way, if what the Bible says is not true and we're accepting these things, uh, we're doing vain, empty, meaningless things. It may sound good, it may be interesting, but nothing to it. And of course, Bible critics are just more than happy to poke the Bible that way, aren't they? So how, what about Luke's accuracy? We've already heard of this in our previous quotations, uh, I think one, two, four of them. Here are two more. <clears throat> one from uh, Dr. Ned B. Stonehouse. Uh, he, for many, many years, was professor of New Testament, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He was one of my professors I had when I attended there. Dr. Stonis was a New Testament scholar and well-respected in his day. He talks about Luke's prologue that it gives explicit expression to the conviction, which obviously all the writers of the New Testament share, that Christianity is true and is capable of confirmation by appeal to what had happened. 
Christianity, according to Luke, was no mere ideology, nor a pragmatic or positivist philosophy of life or ethics. For him, it stood or fell with the objective reality of certain happenings which took place in the full light of day in the midst of a considerable company who made up the membership of the Christian church were reported by competent witnesses and had become widely known. Again, another good quotation for, wow, somebody like Dr. Stonehouse, he had every confidence in what Luke wrote. Then there's Sir William Ramsey. He was a professing Christian, but he had some questions, especially about the book of Acts. He wondered how accurate Luke really was when he started this. So he said, I'm going I'm to go visit these places where he was on his journeys. And what was his conclusion after he did this? Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. He is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historical sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length, while he touches lightly or omits entirely much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest historian. How about that? And I must share this with some of my notes, but I, I'm always impressed with this. As I understand it, the thing that really tipped Ramsey over was something he discovered in Acts 16 and Acts 17. If in Acts 16, the magistrates, the city leaders in Philippi, was a free city, called a free city. There was a certain Greek word that described them. You get to Thessalonica, it's a different kind of a city, and different name for those men. And Ramsey came to that, he said, wow. <laughs> Luke is exactly right. That's right. That was the name for the, the, the city officials in Philippi, in Thessalonica, a different word. Luke knew what he was talking about. So what, finally, what was Luke's purpose? And this is really what gets down to what's important for us. Why, why do you write this? Verse 4, just referred to Theophilus, that you may have certainty, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus, I'm writing this to you. You wanted some more proof, some more evidence, something confirmed by reliable testimony. Here it is. Theophilus, as I mentioned earlier, had been catechized to some extent. And the word taught here is from which we get the word catechism or catechized. Questions and answers. As I mentioned also earlier, we wonder what bothered Theophilus. The pagan ideas and thoughts, non-Christian friends and contacts. Um, what was it that he was bothered by something, and so he got a hold of Luke and said, Luke, I, I just need something more substantial here. <laughs> so he, he gives him Luke, and he gives him the Acts, 24 chapters of, of uh, Luke, 28 chapters of Acts, a lot of material there for Theophilus. 
No one will be convinced of Christianity who does not make serious investigation. And we have to give Theophilus uh, some credit there. He had an interest in, I want to learn more about this. And regrettably, many people who attack Christianity, who attack the trustworthiness of the Bible, they really don't know much about the Bible. And they're not willing to take time to discuss it and look at it and think about it. Now, granted, the Holy Spirit has to open the hearts of these people. Otherwise, they never will do it. But at least it's a way that the Lord uses that kind of thing to bring people to himself. Here's a final quotation by Matthew Henry, a scholar I think lived in the 1800s. There is a certainty in the gospel of Christ. There is that therein which we may build upon. And those who have been well instructed in the things of God should give diligence to know the certainty of those things. To know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. That we may be able to give a reason of the hope that is in us. What a great purpose, verse 4. The office, I wrote this, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It reminds us of what John wrote in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things, especially referring to Christ's signs, Christ's miracles, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote John. Luke tells Theophilus, this is why I wrote might have certainty of what is the heart of the gospel of the Christian faith. Luke shows it in word and in deed that Jesus demonstrated clearly that he is the eternal Son of God. So I would ask you rhetorically, in your own hearts, do you have that certainty? Do you have that confidence in the word of God? If you don't, you need to set about to study it, learn it, talk, talk with the Pastor Bow or some boss or something, you know, just get it taken care of. Don't let it dwindle on and on. If you have some honest questions, we welcome questions. We welcome investigation. The Bible's open to anyone. It's not a closed book in that sense. So to close, yes, Theophilus, his immediate audience was Theophilus. His intermediate audience were those Christians in the first century. But his ultimate audience was to other readers, especially of the nations. And I don't think Luke himself had any idea of how influential his writings would be for centuries and centuries to come, right up to 2023. We're here uh, today on September 10th, 2023, looking at his writings. Closes the book of Luke, talking to the eleven. He's, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Talks about Jesus should suffer, rise again, and then he says that these things about Jesus should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Like Luke would have no idea how big the world was. His was pretty much a confined world of the Roman Empire of the day. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. In our day, some of the responsibilities that we have as a church to keep the Bible's true history before the world, 
defend it against her critics. Thank God we have godly men and women who are doing that. Proclaim the facts of the gospel message. Christ crucified, Christ risen, the only Savior, the only way to God. And educate as many people as possible, not just Christians, but non-Christians, about the reliability of God's Word. Especially words from a reliable reporter like Luke, who wrote not only for Theophilus, but he wrote for you and you and you and me. Join me in prayer. Lord, how we thank you for your word, its accuracy, its truth, its inspiration. Thank you for the message of the gospel that permeates the scriptures centered in Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray we might be faithful as a church, as part of a denomination, as representatives of the name Christian, that we might remain firm in our foundation of what you have revealed to us through men like Luke. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.